Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, The Schoolhouse Rock Edition. It is October 9th, 2014, and my name is Sarah O'Donnell. I'm an editorial writer at The Journal, and with me today to review another busy, busy week at the Alberta Legislature are Provincial Affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. And Legislature reporter Mariam Ibrahim. Hello. Our usual partner in crime, Paula Simons, is off this week. We miss you, Paula, but we hope you are enjoying your uh, few days off here. So we will try to hold it together, just the three of us. We're going to have to be extra opinionated, though, if Paula is not at the table. So I think we can bring it. So there are three things we want to cover this week. Alberta's Auditor General managed to pull focus from the four by-elections underway. We'll talk about what his office had to say in its latest round of reports. Then we'll talk about a major construction plan announced by Premier Prentice to tackle Alberta's classroom crunch. And finally, we will talk briefly, because frankly, I think that's all it deserves, about the latest twist in the seemingly endless quest to write big city charters for Edmonton and Calgary. But we'll start with the AG's reports, because in recent months, Merwin Sahar's reports have had a major impact on Alberta's political scene. Uh, tell me about the latest batch of reports, you two. What's, uh, what was interesting in, in the latest bundle? Don't well, fight over it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, I mean, there, was, there were a few different parts that were being investigated here. Uh, long-term care, oil sands monitoring. Um, there was also a report about uncollected corporate taxes, plus all of those sole source contracts that we'd heard so much about. And of course, the, um, the wind had sort of been taken out of that, uh, those sales by the CBC, who were once again leaked a copy of uh, or, or a portion of the uh, Auditor General report. But uh, definitely um, some interesting findings in there. I, th- I thought the, the stuff about the oil sands monitoring was really, really interesting. Um, and I know Graham has a lot to say about this, but you know, it was a pretty scathing, scathing report when it came to that agency. Alberta talks a lot about having a world-class monitoring system. And what the Auditor General found was that in fact, the Joint Oil Sands Monitoring Program was not following through on its own commitments to file reports. He, he wasn't getting information in a timely way. There was inconsistencies, weak management. And, and I think this, this, is, uh, this, is, this is going to be a really interesting one to follow up on because Premier Jim Prentice has talked a lot about making Alberta, you know, not only a, a natural resource um, uh, exporter, but also an environmental leader. Um, and I think what this report found was that we're not really living up to that standard. Graham, you you have been following the oil sands monitoring yeah, in, in now and great again. detail over the years. What did you think about the the report and what he said about this issue? I'll speak about the report and sort of a, an overall sense of what I get from his report. It's interesting. We're seeing the same thing happen with Sayer. I think that we saw happen with previous auditor generals. Now, as they become more outspoken, the longer they're in the job, they start out writing really. Um, dry reports and don't really take a stand and don't criticize the government very much. And then as they get into the job and realize the government's uh, very often ignoring them, the reports aren't aren't being uh, considered seriously in in a lot of ways, they get more and more frustrated and then they become more outspoken. And Fred Dunn at the end of his tenure as uh, Auditor General was really outspoken, saying he's frustrated, he wouldn't stay in the job, (laughs) he he had he had it with the government, basically. And, and Sayer isn't quite that outspoken, but we are seeing him take, I think, a, a stronger stand, especially when he's, when he's talking to us. The report itself is not particularly explosive, but when you talk to him in news conferences, you, you see how he um, you can get a sense he's getting more frustrated with the government. And then going back to your question about some of the issues, the oil sands monitoring, um, of course, this goes back to 2012 when the government, and I've been, I've been covering these announcements for some time, 
2012, we had the Minister of Environment, Peter Kent, came in and talked to, at a news conference with our, at the time, Minister of the Environment, Diana McQueen, and they were saying, look, this is it, a world-leading system of monitoring the oil sands, the environmental impact. Of course, it takes them four, four decades to get this in place, but they've announced it 2012, isn't this great? And when they had the first year went by, the report was supposed to come out last August. It came out in June of this year. It came out like 15 months after the year ended. The report from the last year still hasn't been released yet. It's there, October. It's October. It's supposed to be released in August of this year. And if they're true to their their schedule from last year, it won't be released until next June. So they keep telling us they're going to bring in a world-leading monitoring system, and they're going to have reports and seeing how wonderful it's doing. The reports, as uh, Marion pointed out, they're so late coming out. When they come out, they're full of inaccuracies. Uh, they're misleading. And these are all comments from Merwin Sayer. Um, he's also critical of the government on, of course, the sole-sourced um, contracts with Navigator. But I think that Prentice has said, look, Navigator will get no more contracts from here on in. The thing is, it's not Navigator's fault. Right. That company was never at fault. It was the government did not follow through its own rules dealing with giving sole source contracts. Just for people who maybe don't know, tell me, can you just tell me who Navigator Navigator is? Right. Navigator is a um, consulting lobbying. They're, they really sort of paint themselves as a high stakes um, crisis PR firm. One of their sort of um, mottos is when you can't afford to lose. Mm. And uh, they are there are a few people, uh, principals there that are really deeply connected to the Tories, uh, to Jim Prentice, uh, to Alison Redford. So there have been a lot of criticisms of the fact that this very, you know, deeply Tory connected PR firm has received these sole source contracts. And in fact, in some cases, the contracts were handed out for amounts, uh, for example, uh, a few hundred dollars below the threshold of 75,000, which is um, when you must put it out for public tender. Well, the the Auditor General has said that that's something that, that can't happen. That's that's contract splitting. And that he worried that that was something that was being done to get around the rules. Now, was it just the what I understood in the past was that the issue was the premier's office was doing these sole source contracts. But what did the auditor general find out? Was it just the premier's office who was using Navigator for sole source contracts? Well, no, it's both. I'll, I'll go. First of all, you're right. Uh, was a bit of background here. The Navigator, of course, was given contracts by the premier's office when it came to the floods in Calgary in 2013. They got over three hundred thousand dollars worth of contracts, but also. The uh, Auditor General found out that the uh, Minister of Health, uh, the former Minister of Health, that is, was giving out contracts as well. Uh, he was actually telling his department, you will deal with Navigator. And Fred Horn is no longer Minister of Health, which explains why maybe he's not in uh, Cabinet, because he was actually um, directing his department to give contracts to Navigator. It's worth asking, did the Auditor General say that this particular company had done anything inappropriate? No, that's what I'm saying. Uh, he's saying no. Navigator oh, n- Navigator's blameless in this. Yeah, the problem isn't Navigator. The problem is the government departments handing over uh, contracts to this company. The, the government did not follow its own rules. So, uh, yeah, so what's happened moving forward, Prentice has said, hey, I wasn't here when this happened. Don't blame me. And besides, moving forward, um, Navigator will get no contracts at all from now on, as long as I'm premier they won't be dealing with the government. So he's trying to kill the issue in its tracks because the opposition now can't say, 
look, this is his friends. He's giving contracts to. He'll say, never give him any contracts. That's the previous people. And from moving forward from now on, nobody gets any work from Navigator with the government. Did the Auditor General, was there anything that was positive to report? Had there been improvements in any of the files that he, he looked at? There was definitely improvement. He said vast improvement when it comes to um, the long-term care for seniors. This goes back to a report done in 2005 by Fred Dunn showing that seniors' care was very haphazard in Alberta, real problems with it. Seniors, in some cases, were being warehoused. Um, there were strange schedules, being wakened up at 2 in the morning for breakfast because the staff uh, had no other time to, to give some of uh, these residents uh, God, breakfast. That's so um, what's happened now is that he said they have made improvements in, in the system. Uh, but he said even though there are good mechanisms now to explain what care should be given to the seniors, each person, um, there's not good mechanisms in place to verify if that care is actually taking place. Basically ah. saying that the, the, the way inspections are being done isn't really going to produce anything fruitful. The facilities are being given two months' notice in some cases before the inspections are happening. And it sounded a little bit like a bureaucratic nightmare where inspectors are sitting in boardrooms reading policy books and interviews and charts but never actually doing walkthroughs, checking bathrooms, that sort of thing. He also found that it seems that there's no one responsible for reading certain facility accreditation reports. They're required by law, but uh, neither Alberta Health Services nor Alberta Health is actually reading them. Um, and so there, there are gaps. And in, in other cases, there are redundancies. Some of the inspection policies and procedures overlap. Alberta Health does its own. Alberta Health Services does its own. And in some cases, they're inspecting the same things uh, at the same times. That seems crazy because yes of course like if I know my mother is coming to town in advance I give my house an extra clean it's when she doesn't warn me that she's coming that she comes in and it's a nightmare and we're all embarrassed well and I think we all when we think about inspections we think about the way they're done in restaurants for example where you know you you get an inspection done and if there are problems you come back and there's another spot check done but you're not generally given months and months notice so is there a plan to fix that did the new health minister have anything to say about it no oh okay. uh, in fact he he, uh, my, my colleague, our colleague Karen Cleese, our other le- legislature reporter, attempted to uh, find out some answers from, from our new health minister about what the government plans to do on addressing some of these issues, these redundancies. Um, and he basically said, stay tuned, which is something we've heard a lot from this government mm-hmm. of late. Um, he said, stay tuned for a, a press conference about long-term care next week. Okay. It's not clear if that is going to be a direct response to the issues that the Auditor General has found in this in this report. Mm. Um, and, and so it really, I mean, there was no real response from that from that ministry. Mm. Yeah, the Premier <coughs> Prentice, he had, he had a news conference week to discuss something else, to announce something else, but he was talking about, he thanked Sayer for the report, excellent report, we'll be taking this very seriously moving forward, we'll be, we'll be addressing these concerns. And it's great, this goes into this over arching um, narrative right now from the government is it's brand new. They're acting as if, you know, we just got here and we're going to fix these <laughs> problems those other guys created. But in fact, of course, it's, this is the government's problems they created. They brought a new guy in to try and solve the problem. So we'll see what actually he, he does moving forward. Um, they're trying to hit the reset button, give the impression they're hitting the reset button. This is a brand new government. Of course, it's not. But the, my question has been, um, is this playing with the public? Are they, in a sense, buying into this new management, you know, new direction, new goal, new government um, rhetoric? Or are they all thinking uh, this is all crap? 
Um, I haven't found an answer to that yet, though. No, I guess I guess maybe we'll get some answers in a f- few weeks when people uh, yeah. go to the polls in the by-elections, mm-hmm. and that'll answer some of it. So you were talking about some of the ways that the government is trying to set the reset button. And I think we should move from the AG's report, although I think we could talk about it for hours, into an announcement that the premier himself made this week. It seems like he did not want to be outdone by the auditor general. And uh, he made a major announcement related to the construction of new schools. How big an announcement was this? Pretty big. I mean, I guess it just depends on what perspective you're coming from. Um, But I mean, pretty big there. The government's painting it as a... um, 10-year, three-phase program, basically saying that uh, there's going to be hundreds of new school build projects over the next five years uh, all over the province, um, you know, on top of schools promised by former premiers Ed Stelmach and Alison Redford, some of which have been built, some of which have not been built. Um, Prentice is up promising another 55 new schools on top of all of the other schools that uh, Albertans have been promised over the last few years. 55 new schools and 20 more modernizations. Um, 15 of those new schools were promised for Edmonton um, and uh, there will be three three more schools uh, that that get major renovations done. Um, Wow. So yeah I mean it was it was really um, it was held. This announcement was held in Calgary, and uh, you know they had big maps set up with with um, you know points where where different communities were going to be getting new schools. And he's committed to having this all done by 2020, and in most cases by 2018. Wow! So I'm really fascinated by this announcement. I mean, how many billions of dollars worth of schools is that? Well, his his promise. Alone, two billion, roughly. So his additional fifty-five new schools. Fifty-five plus twenty from Premier Prentice. That promise is worth about two billion dollars. That has a familiar number to me about new schools. We can talk about that. But why is it, do you think, Graham, that schools right now and education is getting more attention than healthcare? That well, it seems to be not the way it usually is. It's affecting a lot of people right now. A lot of uh, people moving to the province. A lot of uh, communities are being built, and the schools are not following. So a lot of parents right now are thinking, what's going to happen to my kids? They're being either bused to schools further away or they're in modular schools or in trailers. And, and um, it's interesting. You're right. It's a big topic because last week we had the Wild Rose announce $2 billion worth of projects over four years. Yes. And then you had... That's what they, if they were government, they, they were, said if, they if would. If they were yeah. government, yeah. Mm-hmm. They won't do it otherwise. No. <laughs> <laughs> you got to elect them first. They've been fundraising <laughs> really well. Who knows what they could do with that money? No. Um, and then this week we had, of course, uh, Prentice announcing his $2 billion over five years. And you got the Wild Rose accusing Prentice of just following the Wild Rose's promise, and they're both accusing each other of using the by-elections as, um, you know, these announcements being done during a by-election. So these announcements, for example, last, yesterday, this week, it was um, Prentice announcing it with his Minister of Education, who happens to be the uh, candidate in the um, Calgary Elbow riding, of course. So it's Prentice in Calgary Foothills. And last week, you had the Wild Rose announcing it with, with their candidate in Calgary West, um, the school. So this is a big issue right now. A lot of pressure on communities to get more schools because our population is growing, a lot of young people. And um, this is something that uh, people are paying attention to. And we talk, I talk a lot about climate change and issues like that. Environment's important, but short-term, immediate concerns, schools. Yeah, one of the most interesting newsletters I get every week in my inbox comes from Alberta Finance, and it, it looks at weekly financial issues. Or a couple of weeks ago, it was population growth, and they talked about how Alberta is by far the youngest province in Canada. They're just the, the 
explosion of growth on the young side of the scale is is so fast, and especially compared to you know other provinces in Canada. But here's my question: Where do we get? $2 billion for all these new schools. I have no question that we need them, but I just wonder how on earth do we pay for them? Well, I, I think probably there's going to be some debt involved, right? I mean, Prentice hasn't hasn't shied away from that. He's said that if there's an infrastructure debt, we, we might need to go into debt to, to get out of it. We need to build. Um, and so that's obviously going to be a target um, from the opposition, specifically the Wild Rose. He also said that Cabinet needs to look at the capital plan and do some readjusting. And so where those readjustments will happen is not yet clear, right? We haven't really been told, but what we have been told is that schools are his priority and he's going to do what he can to shift things around and potentially go into debt to get these things built. You know, the opposition is saying we've heard that before. Mm -hmm. Uh, We heard that time and time again. There were, you know, announcements after announcement announcement with Premier Redford uh, in Edmonton, Calgary, it felt like at some point there was one every couple of weeks. They were traveling all over the province making announcements. And in a lot of those cases, there's just a sign if that still. So for a lot for a lot of the opposition critics, it's 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 just more of the same. And they're saying, well, we'll wait and see until we actually see some of these schools pop up. Is it unusual that we're seeing these announcements now in October when, you know, without the budget? I mean, we just had a, there was a budget in 2014 passed, but how does this affect that budget? There's, aren't they saying they're going to front like $342 million to the school boards to start planning on these new schools? Like 40, where, 40, 42 Oh, excuse million. me, $42 million. I, I misread. I apologize. $42 million, but But where does that come from in a budget that was already, you know, tight? Well, they do have some surplus money, right? They are running a surplus. And then moving forward, this is, it is, in a sense, the opposition is correct. This is tied to by-elections. This is a way of them saying, look, he's hitting the reset button. I get tired of saying that. He's he's saying, look, there's something new here. I will follow through on promises. I will do things. Here's some proof. I'll be doing that. It's being done during by-elections as a bit of a boost to their candidates, including himself, to say to people, vote for us, because we will actually do things moving forward. And going back to your question about the, the money, this is a government though it gets itself in trouble all the time. Redford announced all those schools and had to pull back and it began a year ago saying, oh, I don't know if we can afford to build these schools because you know the bitumen bubble and things like that they began cutting back. It's a government that refuses to raise taxes or change the tax system. Um, so that leaves you with either you don't build the schools, you break your promise, or as Miriam says, you go into debt. You find other ways of financing it. So I think that this is, and also I mentioned in my call this morning, getting back to the big issues like climate change and things like that. We need, the the government's plan A is simply to build more pipelines and get more bitumen to market and you get more money that way. But the problem is, if the world doesn't trust you on oil sands and they won't let you build more pipelines, what do you do then? And then you, you still are a hostage to the volatile price of oil and gas. So, yeah, they get money right now, and they'll fudge the figures that they have to. They'll bring in a, a budget next year that's, that's very rosy because they're going into an election a year, uh, two years from now, a year and a half from now. They'll make sure there's money there. They'll make sure that the budgets uh, look really good to get these things built. Whether they're going to be built in two or three years after the next election, um, we'll see. Well, I, and the other question, sorry, just to, to jump in is, is there even the capacity? Is, is is can the construction industry handle that much building? I mean, that's more than a hundred schools that need to be built within. We're being told three years, four we're gonna, years. We're going to need more schools to handle the uh, families of all the construction <laughs> workers who come here to build the schools. You know, so I mean, yeah. I, I think that's going to be a really interesting part too. We already know that the government, when it tried to put out, uh, you know, a big bundle of schools for um, for bidding, they got 
maybe one or two bidders because it was just too big and and the capacity wasn't there. So um, and we're not really clear yet what this, you know, Prentice has struck this cabinet committee, right, to focus in on schools and the timelines and make sure that everything is done and and oversee this big infrastructure project. Um, And we've got on there uh, Municipal Affairs Minister Diana McQueen, Jeff Johnson, who's the former education minister, plus Dirks and um, Infrastructure Minister uh, Manmi Pular. Uh, And, you know, they're they're basically being given free reign to look at any number of different sort of financing model. P3, design, build. We don't know what these are going to look like yet. Well, I just can't wait to see what goes on. I feel like this really shows that, you know, in the 2016 election, 2016, right, the the real battleground is going to be these suburbs. Seems like there's a lot of focus on all these new suburbs Mm -hmm. from all the political parties. And it seems like those are going to be the neighborhoods that are people think are up for grabs. So I guess we'll see. Now, speaking of up for grabs, does it does this weird charter announcement that happened today? What does that say about the current state of, you know, the big cities in Alberta politics? You want to just quickly bring us on that? I, I would just say, it, <clears throat> yeah, this is um, Prentice making um, an attempt to show he cares about the big cities. In fact, when he was um, chosen as leader of the party, his first public meeting, well, the meeting that he had a news conference regarding was meeting with uh, the mayors of Edmonton and Calgary separately. He went to see them. They didn't go see him. He went as a, a point to go and talk to them and wave the flag and say, I'm here to, to talk to you. Because again, this goes to the next uh, election. Uh, the mayors are very popular. Um, this PC government is not particularly popular. He's making an effort to, um, to to build some trust. Also, he doesn't want them getting cranky in the middle of by-elections. Um, so he's out there talking to the, to the mayors. As for this charter, I got to say I'm a bit puzzled by it because there was nothing actually announced. It's an agreement to work towards an agreement. And we saw an agreement like this a couple of years ago. We've seen this in, in the works now. And a couple now. of years before that. Yeah, we've and seen this now for years. a couple of years before that. They all talk about uh, building partnerships with uh, with the mayors. Interestingly, I think it was Don Iverson, the mayor of Edmonton, who talked about, you know, um, we're equals now. And Prentice said, well, we're all equals when it comes to being <laughs> determined to solve this problem. <laughs> Not equal. He was saying we're all are equally determined to solve this problem. Oh. So you can see um, there was a bit of a disconnect there. <laughs> that uh, Prentice is not going to make himself an equal of the mayors because, of course, uh, the mayors and the cities are, are still creatures of the provincial government. When it comes to our constitution, you get the federal government, provincial yeah. government, nothing about civic government. Having said all that, though, um, this is Prentice trying to, to work some sort of deal out with the cities, but I'm still confused as to what it all means because Prentice says no tax powers will be given to, the, to these mayors. Uh. I don't know what it means, and beyond that, what are they actually going to do or give to the, the big cities? I don't know. I agree. I guess we will we will watch with bated breath. Let's move to good stuff from the gallery. This is our weekly segment where we recommend something that we think you might enjoy that often has a political connection, something you can read or listen to or even watch on, dare we say it, a screen of sorts. Miriam, would you care to start us off? Absolutely. So on Monday, I was reading with great interest the U.S. Supreme Court um, decision that um, ruled in favor of gay marriage in a handful of U.S. states, Indiana, Oklahoma, Utah, Virginia, and Wisconsin. Um, And uh, yesterday I saw on uh, Bloomberg Bloomberg Politics, it's uh, by David Ingold. It's a, a really interesting sort of look at the way newspapers in those states illustrated that decision. Um, because, of course, after that decision came down, gay couples in those states 
you know, ran to their courthouses and got married. And so there were, of course, front pages with with photographs of these uh, newlywed couples. Um, And the title of this post on Bloomberg Politics is called Newspapers Prefer Lesbians. Um, And it was an analysis sort of of the of the A1s of all of these newspapers. And it found that in 29 of the newspaper newspapers they were uh, women couples and then in three they were men and then in another three it was photos of both kinds of couples Um, I just thought that was a really interesting look and it it's and you know and and he sort of just presented it that way and 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 at the bottom said discuss and I thought it was just an interesting sort of look at how um, there 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 was obviously you know as he says in this title newspaper prefer lesbians and I don't know if that's more palatable to the public or what it is but it sort of sparked uh and and just it was just to me really really interesting that sounds like a good read thanks for thanks for recommending that I'll just jump in next I've got two one's a quick quick hit uh that I just think is is fun and it made me laugh it's a tumblr site and it's called local people with their arms crossed and it's a collection of photos from newspapers all across all over the place with that classic pose of random people sometimes politicians with their arms crossed and I never really thought about it until I saw all those pictures together from all these papers it's like it's like a classic pose but it's it's just it made me laugh it was it's adorable local people with their arms crossed but what I really want to recommend for serious listening is a piece from This American Life that was on a couple weeks ago and it's called The Secret Recordings of Carmen Segarra. And the reason I love this is because this woman worked for the New York Federal Reserve, which is supposed to monitor the big banks. And she, after starting the job, became very concerned that the Fed was not actually doing a good job monitoring or being the watchdog that it's supposed to be. And she started to record her conversations both with people inside the Federal Reserve and with the uh, bank that she was supposed to be monitoring. Really amazing insider look. She, not surprisingly, is no longer working for the Fed, and there is a court case regarding wrongful dismissal. But there's an hour-long segment on This American Life about this piece and then a companion piece on ProPublica where you can read about this this case and uh, Carmen Segarra's recordings and what it says about what's going on inside the world of financial monitoring, which is so important. So I recommend that. Graham, want to wrap us up? Uh, quickly, um, a sort of a plug for a magazine, and uh, the, the Atlantic magazine, uh, the it's a plug in general for the magazine. It's a really great magazine. Uh, the October um, edition has um, an article called How Gangs Took Over Prisons, looking at uh, the U.S. prison system and how gangs basically run the, the, the jails. Uh, th- there's guards there, of course, but the prisoners have got a very sophisticated system set up where they control the violence within the jail, and they also control the street crime because people know in the streets, if you're a criminal, you got to follow certain rules because you'll end up in jail at some point. When you get into jail, if you've broken those rules, the people enforcing the rules are in jail. And the guards sort of admit that, yes, the guards, of course, still patrol the hallways, but it comes to actually the sort of unwritten code that the prisoners control it. It's really fascinating. It, it talked about the UK. doesn't have that. did not mention Canada. It's unfortunate. In fact, the author is Graham Wood, who's actually a Canadian-born journalist, who actually met him in Afghanistan oh. when I was there in uh, 2008. An amazingly good writer, very smart guy, 
and it's a really interesting uh, look at the prison system in the U.S. and what it means to their whole society. It's called How Gangs Took Over Prisons. It's the October edition of The Atlantic magazine. You guys, I have to read The Atlantic more often. You guys always recommend good pieces, and I need to make it part of my regular life. Well, thank you so much for coming in, you guys. And thanks to journal videographer Ryan Jackson for recording uh, this week's video segment for us. You'll find that video excerpt at edmontonjournal.com, along with previous episodes of The Press Gallery, which are archived on our website at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion. Uh, Of course, if you prefer, you can download the podcast for free from iTunes or on SoundCloud, the Edmonton Journal SoundCloud feed. You can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the press gallery. And, uh, you know, throw out some conversations, throw out some topics in there that you think you might like to see us discuss next week. And uh, maybe some good stuff of your own. We'd love to have a new listener recommendation. If you haven't ever given us a listener recommendation, now's the time. It's perfect. We'd love to hear from you. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week in the press gallery.